Hi, you're listening to Sensationalist Science, a podcast about science, the media, and the truth behind those astonishing headlines you've read. I'm your host, GidMK, aka The Health Nerd, and today I'm bringing you a slightly different format to the podcast. As you all undoubtedly know, the novel coronavirus pandemic has changed almost every aspect of our lives already, so I thought, why not my science podcast as well? And so, here we are. Let's try something new. A few days ago, I hosted a live Q&A on Facebook fielding coronavirus questions. Seeing as I am an epidemiologist, uh, I've been fielding these from friends and family for some time. And since these are very common queries, I thought I'd go through a list of some of the top ones and do my best to answer them for you, my dedicated listeners. The big caveat here that I announced on Facebook and am very clear about is that I am both primarily a chronic disease epidemiologist and not God, just Gid. So while I will do my best to answer all the questions that I can, I will be very frank with the things I do not know. If you enjoy this episode, and if you have more questions that I haven't answered, let me know on Twitter at GidMK, or Facebook at at GidMKHealthNerd, and I will endeavour to answer them in a future podcast. So, let's start off with the first and biggest question I've been asked, the rate of infection. What is the rate of infection for coronavirus and COVID-19? This is a very difficult question to answer. So we don't know the true number of cases of infection of coronavirus in any populations right now. The problem is that we test as many people as we can, but in many places testing is limited and we also rarely test people who aren't sick. As you have probably heard, there are asymptomatic cases of coronavirus. So these are people who either do not have symptoms now or never develop symptoms, um, potentially never develop symptoms, and they can still pass the disease on. But they probably will never be tested because you don't go to a doctor and get tested for anything if you're not sick. And in many countries, they don't meet the testing criteria. So what that means is that we have a group of people in each country who are infected with the disease, but not identified. And the estimate using data from China of how many people this is ranges anywhere between 20 to 50% of all infections may be these um, asymptomatic or mild cases who are not diagnosed. So a good rough figure is to multiply the the number of confirmed cases that you see in your local reports by somewhere between two and five times. That isn't going to give you anything close to accuracy, but it may give you some idea of the true number of infections in, in your area. This being said, I would go back to my first point, which is that we really don't know. It's likely to differ significantly from country to country, and it really depends on how good the testing is from place to place. The next question that I'm getting asked all the time is case fatality rate. Firstly, what does it mean? And secondly, what is it for coronavirus? So case fatality ratio, very simply, is the proportion of people who die out of the total number of cases of a disease. For coronavirus, this is actually quite hard to work out. 
going back to my earlier point, we don't know yet the true number of cases of coronavirus. So every case fatality ratio is at the moment somewhat suspect. That being said, we can calculate case fatality ratios um, at different points in time and for different places, and then put all these together into one estimate. And some scientists have done that. They've taken all of the different estimates from different countries like China, South Korea, Italy, Australia, the UK, and they've combined them into a single estimate. And that seems to be about 1.5% of all people who um, catch coronavirus and uh, become ill with COVID-19, the disease that coronavirus causes, die, roughly. The other thing that's important to remember with case fatality ratios is that they differ depending on your population. So one of the theories as to why Italy is seeing so such a high rate of death in their population is that they have a an older population and they are smokers. So a lot of people smoke, which is a risk factor for coronavirus and other respiratory infection. And so you see a higher case fatality rate because they have more um, people who are susceptible to the disease. But I think the best current estimate is somewhere around 1.5% case fatality ratio. That being said, I should also note that this is another thing that's very variable with testing and places that are testing enormous amounts of people like Australia and South Korea are seeing much, much lower estimates of case fatality ratios. So Australia's current estimate is 0.34% and South Korea's estimate is a bit higher at 0.6%, I believe. It may be that the case fatality ratio is quite a lot lower than 1.8% or 1.5%, but we won't know for some time. The next question that I've been asked quite a few times is how long is this all going to last? Now, I will say right here, right now, that I am not predicting anything. I don't think you can make good predictions without very complex models about how long this epidemic will last and how many people will get infected. That being said, all of the advice I've seen and all of the experts that I've talked to have given the same message, which is that this will last months, not weeks. The planning that I think you should make at this point in time is to think in terms of months. So rather than saying this will all be over in a week or two, think this may all be over in a month or two and think about it like that. So a lot of people are asking about contagiousness. How contagious is the disease? And are asymptomatic infections driving the spread of the disease? So we measure the contagiousness of infectious diseases using a statistic called the reproduction number or the reproductive number. And the basic reproductive number is the main statistic we use. And that is R0. You've probably heard R0 thrown around quite a lot. Um, for normal influenza, R0 is about 1.3 to 1.5 for your seasonal influenza. Um, and for measles, which is a very, very infectious disease, it's somewhere between 15 and 18. So the R0 
is simply the average number of people that each infected person goes on to infect. So for influenza, each infected person passes the disease on to on average 1.3 to 1.5 people. Or to put it another way, for every two people who have influenza, a further three will get it from those two people. Uh, for measles, it's much, much more infectious. Um, it's more like every person who catches measles will pass it on to 18 people unless they are immune. So for coronavirus, we're not 100% sure of the contagiousness of the R0 of the disease. And that's because R0 is calculated post hoc. You always calculate it after the fact by averaging the number of people who are being infected by each case. It requires case tracing, it requires some complex analysis to estimate without case tracing, and it, so it's, it's the sort of thing that you only know for sure once the epidemic is finished. But we can get some very good estimates based on things that have happened in China, things that have happened in other countries, and things that are happening right now. And those estimates put the number of R0 somewhere between 2 and 3, and most likely, at this point, most likely between 2.5 and 3. So what that means is that every person who contracts coronavirus, if the population is susceptible, so if no one is immune, which in this case no one is immune, will pass on the disease to between 2.5 and 3 people. You can bring the R0 down in two ways. The first way, as I said, is if people are immune. So once people have caught the disease or if they're vaccinated against it, they will no longer catch it and so the R0 will drop. The other method of preventing of, of lowering that R0, uh, or lowering the effective reproduction rate, which is R, is by quarantine measures or social distancing measures, which essentially is what most countries are trying to do now. So the aim of our social distancing measures is to bring the effective reproduction rate from that 2.5 to 3 range where the spread of coronavirus is very high and lots of people will get it down to somewhere either just above or below 1 which would either cause the epidemic to slow down significantly or stop entirely. The other question there is about asymptomatic infection. What about all those people who are not symptomatic but are passing on the disease? So firstly we know that this does happen there are numerous reports and it has been demonstrated that people um, can have sufficient amount of the virus in their, in, uh, growing in them to pass on the disease even if they don't have symptoms. However, generally speaking, the models demonstrate that these people are probably not the main cause of disease spread. It's certainly true that that, that that increases the infectiousness of the virus, but if you're not currently experiencing symptoms, you're not sneezing, you're not coughing, you're not spreading the virus around as much as someone who is. So it also does depend on the social distancing measures in place because if people who have the virus and have symptoms are quarantining 100%, then asymptomatic infection becomes a much bigger spread. But at the moment, the biggest risk is from people with symptoms, not people silently passing around the disease in the background. 
Another question that I've been asked a few times is about herd immunity, what it is, and why in the world the British government thought it was a good idea to use the term as some sort of preventative measure for coronavirus. And I have to say, when I first heard the words herd immunity in relation to prevention of a virus, I laughed. And that's because herd immunity without a vaccine by definition, is not preventative. Let me explain. Herd immunity is an epidemiological concept that describes what happens when enough people in a population are immune to a disease that the disease can't spread within that population. In other words, once you've reached the herd immunity threshold, the disease will infect one, maybe two people, or a small group of people, and then peter out and no longer infect everyone else. And that's what you see if you look at what happens to measles in countries where the measles vaccination rate is sufficiently high. Once you've reached the threshold and enough people are protected from infection, a few people will get sick, you'll get a little outbreak, and then it will stop because most people are immune. Now, let's think about this in the context of coronavirus. Firstly, we don't have a vaccine, so the only way to become immune to the disease is to catch the disease. Now, that's a problem because we don't want to catch the disease because, as I mentioned earlier, there's a fairly high death rate. So then we look at something called the herd immunity threshold. The herd immunity threshold is the number of people who have to be immune to the disease for it to stop spreading. It's the... the proportion of the population that needs to be protected. So if we calculate the herd immunity threshold, which is based on the R0 of a disease, for coronavirus, we get 60% to 70%. So 60 to 70% of the population, depending on your R0, whether it varies between 2.5 and 3, has to be protected from infection for herd immunity to kick in. And remember, to be protected from infection means that you have to catch the disease. So for herd immunity to be activated, I guess, for, for the herd immunity threshold to be reached, 60 to 70% of everyone in a population has to be infected with the disease. And given that the death rate is somewhere around 1%, that means 06 to 0.7% of everyone in a country would die before the herd immunity threshold was reached and the disease stopped spreading. And if, if most people are infected by an epidemic disease, then you have already failed. By definition, it is not prevention. And some people have suggested that what you could do is you could infect all the young people and let the old people be safe uh, and you'd reach the 60% threshold somehow. That's just Total nonsense. The way herd immunity works is that 60 to 70% of all age groups, of all communities, of all subsets of the population have to be infected and have to be immune. Because otherwise, what you're left with is pockets where there is no immunity to disease and any imported cases will cause a massive outbreak. So if you were to only infect young people, then old people would be at a huge amount of risk, even bigger potentially than they are now. So... Basically, ultimately, herd immunity is in no way preventative unless you have a vaccine, 
Once we've got a vaccine, herd immunity will be a very important concept and something that we all want to read up on. Right now, it is unlikely to help us in any way. Another question that I am seeing asked a lot is about future cases of coronavirus. Now, I would like to reiterate that I do not like most of the predictions that I've seen made, but I think it's very important to explain why I don't like them. The thing about infectious disease epidemics is that they are very reliant on individual behavior, and they can change a lot depending on what each person does. So, for example, the fact that half of Australia appears to be working from home already, even though the government hasn't technically decreed it, has changed the nature of the epidemic somewhat. If you look at the basic exponential curve plotted last week using last week's numbers, it predicts a much higher number of cases in Australia than we actually see today. And this is not unexpected. The thing is that people change their behavior in relation to circumstances, even if the government doesn't force them to. They may not change quickly enough and they may not sufficiently mitigate the issues with coronavirus, which is why the government probably will be forced to step in 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 a meaningful way and has been forced to step in, but they do change some things about individual behavior. So what you have to do if you're going to really um, try to predict the number of cases in a a pandemic disease like coronavirus is something called agent-based modeling. And what this does is it takes every single person Uh, allocates them kind of a unique set of probabilities and constructs a really complex scenario where each of them has a potential uh, probability of, you know, going to work, getting the coronavirus there, staying home, getting the coronavirus there. And then what you do is you plot a range of these scenarios um, because there are many ways that the future can go. I mean, there's not one prediction, you know, there are hundreds of predictions. And there are actually a few published papers that have done this for Australia, for other countries as well. And if you read them, they're complex, they're technical, they're quite dense, and they're not certain. But if you read the predictions posted by every tech bro online, you'll find that they are They're simple, they're direct, they are absolutely certain, and I can tell you right now, they are all wrong. (sighs) It's been annoying me all week. Okay, another question I was asked a lot was about seasonality. Will coronavirus be seasonal like influenza? Now, this is a hard question to answer, and I'm going to say that right out. We don't know 100% whether coronavirus will be seasonal or not. It's reasonable to assume that like other coronaviruses which cause the common cold, this COVID-19 and SARS-CoV-2, which is the name of the virus itself, will be seasonal to some extent, but it's hard to know how much that will impact the number of infections for the disease. So for the Northern Hemisphere, which is heading, heading into summer, there may be a reduction. For the Southern Hemisphere heading into winter, there may be uh, an increase in the number of cases, but we really don't know at the moment. 
Um, I think it's worth noting that Singapore has seen quite a few cases and other countries in in the kind of near the equator, which have constant climates, have seen a lot of cases and outbreaks themselves. And so the idea that um, coronavirus is going to go away entirely during summer seems unlikely. Um, another question I, I was asked a lot was the status of antiviral medications and other drugs for coronavirus, um, particularly after, after President Donald Trump tweeted out uh, some ridiculous nonsense about hydro, uh, sorry, hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin. So firstly, I'll say we don't have any proven medications that work for COVID-19 infections yet. There are dozens, if not hundreds of clinical trials currently being undertaken, looking at a variety of drugs from um, HIV medications to malaria medications to antibiotics, all of which we hope will be able to treat coronavirus. But thus far, I have to say the news is not promising. So the study that had everyone really excited about chloroquine and azithromycin and had President Donald Trump tweeting ridiculous nonsense, as I said, was very poorly done and is unlikely to have been accurate in any way. A new randomized control trial, which looked at the same drugs, has recently been published and found no benefit to either one. There was a trial of two anti-HIV medications, so antiretroviral medications, uh, published in the New England Journal of Medicine that found that they offered, at best, a very minimal benefit in terms of survival for COVID-19 patients who are very ill. And there's some hope for some other drugs. So there's a lot of kind of lab bench studies in petri dishes that have demonstrated some things can kill uh, the first SARS virus, so SARS-CoV-1, which caused the SARS outbreak in the early noughties. Um, but we simply don't know yet which of these, if any, will be effective in treating people. I've also been asked a lot whether there's any certainty that you can't get the disease twice. Now, this is a difficult question because I'd say, in all honesty, we don't really know. The current best evidence appears to be that you do generate a significant immune response that's probably long-lasting and the virus doesn't mutate that quickly. So this is, you know, I'm, I'm trying to give a simple answer here, a relatively simple answer. And the expert opinion I've seen is that you probably will be immune to the virus for some time after you've caught it. And potentially that's going to be years, not months, as with the flu. So the flu, your, your immunity doesn't last very long, and that's why you have to get vaccinated every year. This virus probably will be slower at mutating than the flu. I've also seen some opinions saying that it probably will mutate at some point. So what that means is, you're probably going to be immune for some time after you've caught the virus, and hopefully that's years, not months, but we don't know exactly how long you will be immune for. And this is also an area where I don't know enough to tell you exactly how long that will be or give you any sort of prediction about how long it might be. So I think I'll finish off with a question that I was asked a lot, and it's kind of a two-part question. Um, firstly, you know, 
the self-isolating we're doing is an investment in time. We're trying to push out that the epidemic peak. So will we be required to self-isolate until a vaccine is available? And also, um, do I think that this self-isolation is necessary? Is it important? Particularly if the disease isn't going away anytime soon. Because if the disease is here to stay, well, maybe we should all just go out and get it. We should all just get sick and then the herd immunity threshold will be reached and we'll all be fine. So obviously that's untrue. I've explained already why that's not the case, but I, I think it's worth considering why self-isolation is necessary and why it's important and why all these quarantine measures are quite useful. The reason why essentially is, is that flatten the curve that I'm sure you've all seen everywhere. If we all get the disease in the next month, the health system will be overwhelmed and a lot of people will die. And that's what you're seeing in Italy. I mean, if you doubt that this can happen, just have a look at any of the stories coming out of Italy. It is a tragedy that is truly devastating in scale. So the idea is, if we all stay at home, if I work from home for the next two months, if other people try to limit their social interactions or at least their physical interactions as much as possible, if we all do that, then the peak of the epidemic will be much further away and it will be much lower because what happens is the same number of people are infected but more slowly. So rather than seeing tens of thousands of people showing up at the emergency department overnight, you'll see hundreds of people turning up at the emergency department every day for a long period of time, which means that they can all be triaged and treated effectively. People who need respirators will get respirators. People who need less invasive support will get less invasive support. And people have a much better chance of surviving an infection. Rather than the situation you see in Italy, where everyone is turning up at the hospital at the same time and people are dying. So in short, the reason for us to implement these social distancing measures, the reason for us to quarantine people, if necessary, is so that our health system is not overwhelmed. And even though we might see the epidemic over more quickly, if everyone was just to get infected, infected all at once, that would be a huge issue because a lot of people would die. This has been your dose of sensationalist science and coronavirus madness. I'm your host, GidMK, and you can find me on Twitter at GidMK, on Facebook at GidMK Health Nerd, or on Medium at GidMK. You can also find the podcast on SoundCloud at SensiPod, or wherever you get your podcasts by searching sensationalist science. Have a great week, and remember, stay safe and stay socially distant. <laughs>